Hello, this is Michael Canfield, and thank you for joining us today on The Dog Watch. The Dog Watch is an evening shift of early or late duty for the people who undertake it. This Dog Watch considers the natural world and the things that help us experience it, from dogs to watches and everything in between. Ultimately, it's a place for us to go wherever curiosity takes us. It turns out that this episode of The Dog Watch is brought to you by the letter W, a show that can be described with an alliterative string about watches starting with our guest, Zach Weiss of Worn and Wound. Being one of the co-founders of Worn and Wound, Zach describes how the business grew from an inauspicious blog intended to help a friend choose a watch into what is now one of the primary sites for watch journalism and commerce in the world. In a phrase, we learn it is a place to discover watches and experience enthusiasm. In our conversation, we talk with Zach about watches he is excited about, including two new ones that are on his wrist, the goals and aspects of Worn and Wound, such as their main site for news and reviews, the Wind-Up Watch Shop, and the Wind-Up Watch Fair. We also look ahead to the upcoming Wind-Up Fair in Chicago and to some new releases. And with that, let's turn to our conversation with Zach Weiss of Worn and Wild. Hi, Zach. Thanks so much for joining us today on The Dog Watch. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So I have a sense that, you know, especially the Worn and Wild team uh, has some different locations, etc. So I'm wondering where you're based and where we find you today. Yeah, so I am based in Brooklyn and I'm at our uh, main office, which is also in Brooklyn and in Gowanus. Oh, wow. Okay. So what's your office like? What, what's your place like? Um, our office is actually pretty awesome these days. We, we recently moved uh, within a building. So we've been in this one building for a few years and it's a you know converted factory building um, in Gowanus, which was like a very industrial area up until not that long ago. And so we have this sizable office. It's like around 3,500 square feet. And we have like a basically a big area that has all of the desks for our employees, um, some which are who are in the office several times a week or every day. Others who travel in, um, we have a little like living room area, and then we have some sort of more private spaces. So I'm in a conference room slash our video recording and podcasting room, um, and then there's a photo studio and some other things. So yeah, it's actually really come together in the last few months. Yeah, it sounds like a great playground for this kind of activity, actually. <laughs> It yeah. is. It is. It's really nice. This is our first time being able to like separate at all from each other. So before yeah. we were all just, you know, in a very nice space, but just there was no privacy. And if we wanted to record a video or a podcast, we'd have to ask everyone to be quiet. But then like we have, we're, we're very like close with our UPS guys. So he'll just like kick in the door. Like he's like a Kramer <laughs> and just be like, what's up guys? And we're like, oh no, we're recording. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and do you do the fulfillment stuff or the wind-up shop stuff, stuff separately, or is that all part of the same thing in Brooklyn, or is that is that located elsewhere? Um, it's also in Brooklyn, and, and we do uh, most of it ourselves. You know, th- there's a couple brands that drop ship, that kind of a thing, but yeah. like all the accessories, and I'd say probably 90% of the, the watches as well. Oh, that's cool. And that must be nice, especially because then you, you know, when stuff actually physically comes in or you're looking at it, you you maintain a, a little bit closer contact than if it's off in some other location. Yeah, hundred percent. No, we, you know, we're, we're attached to it pretty closely. But early on, um, when we were first getting started, particularly with straps, once we hit that point where we like had too much inventory for apartments, but not enough money to have like our own dedicated space, like we did try and out source fulfillment and um yeah not having not having the connection to it was was bad it was it, it was a bit of a disaster to be honest so we, we brought it back in it, you know stra- watch stuff in particular is so kind of nuanced that like expecting somebody who you know a company that knows nothing about watch straps to be able to at a glance tell between an 18 a 20 and 22 in you know espresso brown versus <laughs> stout brown versus cho- you know it's like it's, it's a recipe for disaster. <laughs> so. Yeah. So, you know, as a follower of the Worn and Wound podcast, I know, uh, you know, you have the tradition, as as some do, of, of having, a I guess, a wrist check at the beginning of the episode. I haven't done that on the, on the dog watch yet, but, you know, it'd be a great first time to do this on the podcast. So I'm wondering, like, what you're wearing right now and, and what you can say about your, your wrist. Sure. So um, it's a good timing because this literally came in this morning. And oh, it cool. Is, 
my newest watch, and I've had a bit of a week where I've had two new, very, very nice watches come in that that wasn't planned that way. There was supposed to be time between them, but they just landed at the same time. Um, so I'm currently wearing the Tudor Black Bay Pro. Oh, wow. So how is it? It is it is fantastic. You know, so I, I got to see it in Geneva when they launched it at um, Watches and Wonders. And it was actually the first booth that I went to at the fair because Tudor always... Um, Tudor's always drops something and it's always like the news. So you got to kind of be there and it's, you know, personally of interest. So I saw it there and I was immediately just like, they did it. Like that's, that's the, the Black Bay I've been waiting for, or the Tudor I've been waiting for. I, I haven't owned one yet. And I'd even joked like at some point prior to that, like if they came out with a fixed steel bezel GMT in the Black Bay 58, like case more or less that I would have to get it. And then they did that. And they never do anything you expect them right. to do. So that was really like <laughs> exciting. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's gorgeous. And, you know, now getting it back on my wrist, it's, uh, it's what I remembered it being. And, you know, now I've spent a few hours with it and I, it's absolutely, it's fantastic. So size wise, how does it feel as far as the, you know, the, mm-hmm. the diameter and the thickness, yeah. et cetera. I know there's been a lot of conversation around that. <laughs> yeah, I know you've lot. only had it a couple hours, but here's the first take, right? Like what's your yeah, sense? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the footprint of the watch, you know, is, is very similar to the 58. So it's a 39 millimeter. I, f- I forget the lug to lug, but it's probably like 48 ish, maybe yeah. less, probably less actually. Um, so it fits, I mean, top down, it fits beautifully. Like if you've ever tried a black Bay 58, that is all, the same and it might even it almost feels a little smaller i think because the steel bezel sort of compresses the dial a little more than the you know the colorful bezels of the other other models which sort of bring the dial to the edge almost visually okay um but it is it is certainly a thicker watch you know it's 14.5 millimeters thick and um people have gotten really really upset by that i know but it really like it's one of these things like in practice, I don't find myself caring about it. You know, would it be nice if it was 12.5? Of course, but it doesn't, it doesn't tower on my wrist. Um, it just feels, I mean, it feels like a robust, certainly sport watch. That's yeah. I mean, it's, it, 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 I'm not forgetting it's there. I'll put it that right. way, but it, it's not bothering me. And I, I don't, I, I'm actually pretty like thickness is something that I do care about with watches and, um, I feel like it's the kind of thing that I put on watches in the past. I've owned watches in the past, like got this Sin One Five Six that I had, which had a Lamania Fifty One Hundred movement in it, and like I just couldn't get over the dimensions of that watch. I loved it, but it was just like too chunky. It felt like I was going to wha- like hit it into things. Um, this just doesn't feel that way, you know. I think people really need to try it on the wrist, and you know, no worries if it's if it doesn't if if it is too thick for you, that's understandable. But I just don't think it's like this horrific dimension or something yeah and um what's the other one you got then okay yeah so yeah (laughs) the other one so that one i I got a zenith uh el primero a chronomaster original el primero with a yeah which was a bit of a reach for me but i just um i just was smitten with them and i I decided to pull the trigger so it's the inverse panda model with the um which is just you know, I, I've, I've liked their watches for some time and then they, but they never quite like, they just didn't, you know, it wasn't a watch I felt like I needed kind of a thing. Yeah, sure. And then they came out with these new, this new line of the Chronomaster original. And we had one in the office like last year at some point, which was um, a boutique. Yeah, there's an online boutique d- edition. And it was the first time seeing this new case and everything. And it just, it was so much more, in my opinion, like elevated in its finishing than the previous version of the Chronomaster um, that it was just like immediately like, wow, they've really stepped things up. And then it had this crazy movement in it, the El Primero 3600, which does the one tenth second counting on the central, the central second hand, which, you know, I mean, now a couple other El Primeros or a couple of Zeniths do it, but that's really rare. Like this must be the first watches really in history, serial production to do that. So it's just, it's just so unique, you know? And yeah, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't shake it. Wow. <laughs> so, That's a big yeah, day. I mean, Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. No, and now I have these competing watches. That was kind of the part of the, the silliest thing about it is, is like, I really want to wear both. And <laughs> so now they'll have to, they'll have to alternate and, and neither really gets the, the honeymoon. Yeah. Well, but, you, so <laughs> will you wear the Tudor all day 
or will you have sort of a hybrid where you'll sort of wear for a few hours and then like what's i could see it both ways yeah i mean when i'm sitting around the office i end up switching the watch several times it just kind of happens but you know probably if i'm depending on what i'm I'm doing this weekend i I just wore the zenith most of the week so i'll probably rock this one for the weekend and i i do have some traveling coming up which will be nice to have a traveling watch four so right. i think this will get to uh will be the star of that that trip yeah that's fantastic i wondered um just from a, your perspective like someone who's now steeped so heavily in the watch business and culture etc so you have your own personal collection which i imagine you're describing these are part of your own personal collection yes yes and then you've got your sort of professional interactions with watches and wearing them etc does it ever feel like those like come too close together or are they hard to keep apart or does does one devalue the other or how does that shake out i mean you know occasionally it's one of these things where it's like you know don't meet your hero kind of a thing you know um so i i try to i try to like put a bit of a wall in my head because i do you know obviously genuinely love watches and you know they probably there's probably wisdom to like not going into business doing a thing that you really like personally love because yeah, there's a chance you're going to come out on the other end being pretty bitter about it. Um, but you know, for the most part, there really hasn't been any, like there hasn't been really any issues kind of a thing where like a brand has done something where I've been like, oh, I can't see the watch the same way or something yeah. like that. These watches do stand on their own. I will say, you know, here and there there's been, some, you know, it's it's just the nature of things. Like, if something is tied to a story that is unpleasant for you, then seeing that thing will bring that story back to your mind. So, you know, here and there, there's little things like that. But it's it's not been, like, the biggest concern. But there's definitely, like, there's definitely, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, these are big companies. They're not, like, these, like, the things that you get really, like, intimately, you know, you, most of them, like, you know, just using... Like Zenith is a very big company. I happen to have met the CEO, et cetera, oh, but I'm really? not going to have like a close friendship with them or anything like that. So it's very like, it's a bit much more detached. Whereas some of the, like the micro brands, like an Autodromo or Bradley, you know, Price from Autodromo, like I know him very well. We text about random things. So it's just a very different sort of relationship um, in those watches, you know? Oh yeah, sure. It's funny. I, um, so I'm having a little bit of a similar situation or, or dilemma myself. I'm wearing the black dial Daytona that um, James Cox oh, lent me. Um, okay. I don't know if you know James, but he was the guy who Paul Newman gave the Paul Newman to um, and oh, you know, wow. wore it for 30 years. And then he sold it with Nell to um, do the, you know, fund the Nell Newman foundation or help fund it. And um, he, I had him on the podcast and he, I told him I hadn't worn a Rolex before. <laughs> so so <laughs> it's like, well, you're going to try it out. Um, so, oh, wow. yeah, so it's great. I mean, it's a fantastic watch. Um, I, you know, what year is that one? Or is this, I mean, it's a new, it's new. I don't know what year it was produced, but it's okay. It's so it's probably, one of the modern yep, ones mm-hmm. with the, the ceramic bezel. Yep. Ceramic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. black dial. And, you know, it's just mm-hmm. a great size and whatever, but it, in some ways it's kind of broken me, <laughs> you know, like it's, <laughs> I put the old Seiko five on the other day and it's, you know, you, it, it's, it's instructive. Um, right. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, there is like, I, I remember when we first got into this, cause we were so focused on, on, you know, f- like affordable watches is really like the thing that Warner one really focused on. And it was very much reflecting, you know, our, where we were in the end, like in our personal lives and everything. And, you know, the idea of buying a something like a Zenith was just completely and utterly absurd. And you kind of like, I remember back, back then sort of being like, how, how, how different are these things? You know, yeah. like how different oh. really is a $500 watt, dollar watch from a $1,000 watch from a $10,000 watch? And sometimes there's less than you think. And sometimes there really is a difference. You know what I mean? And it's, it's sort of case by case, brand by brand and hard to kind of put your finger on. But, you know, when you see that really good finishing in person, you're like, okay, yep. that is that next level of, of care, you know, like just, you know, take pick up a Grand Seiko and you'll see like that higher level of finishing than what you'll see on a watch that's, you know, just machine finished or under, you know, under a certain price point. But the, the, the less expensive watches have gotten much, much, much better over the years too. So that gap is closed yeah. as well. But yeah, I mean, there's a certain, 
I don't know, grace or gravity or something to something like a Daytona. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about it. I've written a few things about it and just starting to process it. Um, But also, you know, there's a lot of conflict in it too, for me um, in the sense of like, you know, about what Rolex can represent, et cetera. But it's, Mm -hmm. but it's been really, really been a good experience to challenge those things. And, you know, also to see kind of the ends of the spectrum of, you know, this is a pretty high end finishing, et cetera. But then, you know, we're looking forward to coming to wind up in Chicago and like seeing, and I think I'll notice that, you know, a lot of the plate, you don't have to spend that kind of money to get a really, really nicely finished watch. Like you're saying, like a lot oh, no, of those watches certainly. are incredible for a very small fraction of the, of the cost of something like this. So anyway, so I'll probably be sending it back soon and, and be on the hunt. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> myself. Yeah. The challenge with that watch, obviously it's like, if they were just available at retail, I mean, they're still like, I think the MSRP on those right now is around like 14 or so, which yeah. is so hefty. But then the after the, 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 what they're actually selling for is just insane. Right yeah. Now. No, so it's, like, <laughs> yeah. And, and it really challenges what value and, you know, it sent me on this whole thing with uh, not to go off on a tangent, but I, mm-hmm. Read Robert Persig's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance again and went down <laughs> this whole rabbit hole of trying to figure out what value is and quality and all that stuff. So, for myself, right? And it's been, mm-hmm. it's actually been really important and, um, to create some of those thoughts and, and consideration. Um, but it is, it's, it's kind of weird actually. Um, I, I feel grateful to James though because, you know, I'll never buy it or sell it. Right, so it can just be what it is as an object to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, that's been a really nice thing. So anyway, um, you know, kind of on that topic, um, you know, one of the things I want to talk about is kind of where, you know, the history of worn and wound, and kind of who you guys are, and and in in kind of um, a preface to that, I'm curious. You know, some of uh, our listeners will know a lot about you and kind of know where you what your background is, and some will just be mm-hmm. meeting you as an individual, especially for the first time. So. You know, where, what is your background as far as like, how did you, what did you do before Worn and Wound? Kind mm-hmm. of how did, how did that kind of, how did you come to that place where you started to, to approach watches? Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I grew up with an interest in watches because of my dad who, you know, is a, a collector of sorts as well. Um, you know, I think in the, in the standard of, you know, the, 80s and 90s, certainly an above average collector, but, you know, by today's kind of like feverish collecting, not quite the, uh, not quite the same, but he has got a really wonderful, you know, selection of watches. Um, So, you know, they were always around and he just got me into those. We're not really like a sports family. So really couldn't care less about most sports and things like that. So the weekend we'd like, you know, grew up in Manhattan. So the weekend we'd, you know, go various places, but I'd say probably like I don't know, once every few months or so, we would go to the uh, big watch stores over in New York City. So there was the Torno Time Machine on 57th Street. And um, we would just walk through the entire store and just look at everything. And um, there used to be a store called Kenjo up the block from there, which was an independent dealer. And, you know, that would be, you'd look at watches there as well. And I, you know, I have vague memories I'm not even hundred percent sure if they're like how accurate they are, but of seeing, you know, Alon Silberstein's and Daniel Roth's and things like that in that store. Um, but yeah, so, and then I just always wore a watch and typically a swatch back then. Like I, I, I had really, I had a lot of them, <laughs> like, really? but uh, yeah, like what, it what, break. Uh, <laughs> estimate like order of magnitude. I mean, I think well, I'd wear it until it broke. Okay. It wouldn't die. It would like the battery, it would like the watch would break in some way, because these were not really built for kids, you know? Um, so crack the crystal on those old swatches. And, um, but you know, I mean, I have a watch box of watches for when I was a kid and it's got in there a bunch of Timexes, digital ones like Iron Man's and things like that. Are they, I feel like I had a G-Shock, but if I, I can't find any, but I definitely had old Casios. I had, uh, swatches. I had like, I got a couple of fossils. I probably had like probably close to like 15 watches as a kid, Wow! you know, they're all, you know, the kind of watches you go into and buy at a mall, but they were, I definitely had an appreciation. I just always wore a watch. So it's just been the idea of not wearing a watch is very like foreign to me. So, you know, when I graduated from high school, I remember I bought like a, a swatch chronograph that was in a square case and was a milky white kind of semi-translucent thing. Um, not something I would ever go for today, but like, you know, I thought it was cool. And, 
uh, you know, I wore that, and yeah, yeah, I, I don't, yeah, I got it, I forgot about these, I had a couple of, um, the Philip Stark designed fossils from back in the day as well. Oh, wow. So, which is actually a good kind of crossover piece, because I went to, I went to college for studio art, but um, was always interested in design and architecture, and I ended up, I went to get a master's in product design. So, my interest in watches definitely has been a part of, like, you know, my general kind of creative interests and professional interests. And it was always in my mind, even in grad school, even though we weren't designing watches or anything, that like, well, I know how to do design, I know how to do the CAD work and all this other stuff. Um, I'd love to get into my watch into watches. So my actually my very first job interview out of grad school was at a a watch company that's located in Long Island City called MZ Burger. Hmm. And they do all these like licensed watches. So it's really like inexpensive stuff like like Hello Kitty kind of a thing that you'll see at like a drugstore. Um, but it was like a job listing that came up and it was me like, yes, I have to, just have to apply for a watch, a watch design job. And um, I remember they gave me like an assignment as part of the um, you know, interview process, which in retrospect, like I would never do that again. You know, I'd never like do free work, yeah. but, <laughs> but you know, it was like my first thing. <laughs> so I designed this watch and it was supposed to be like this eco-friendly watch and I did this beautiful rendering and everything. And like, it was completely over their head. Like I tried to design a watch that would use no glue and use recycled materials. And they're like, oh uh, no, we just meant like something out of aluminum. And it was just <laughs> one of these interviews. I was like, okay, I'm, I will not enjoy this. And I didn't get the job anyway, probably for the best, but um. But yeah, and so then I worked in product design and, and graphics and packaging design for a while. So my last job before I quit to do Warner One full time was doing packaging and graphic design for a gift good uh, company. But I never really quite liked working in design in New York City. It was just terrible hours, not a lot of respect, not very good pay yeah. <laughs> or anything like that. Um, and so I was always very frustrated. So Warner Wound, though it started as a just a side project for you know myself and founding business partner uh, Blake Mallon. We went to college together. Really, just started as this sort of outlet, creative outlet for us, and to kind of get into watches. Um, once it sort of showed that it had some legs, I was like, I got it. This is it. I got to do this. You know? So, what was that initial version like? What did it look like? What did the initial worn in my own like? How did yeah. that sort of develop in its early early stages? So, back in you know two thousand. 11, 2000, you know, when we're kind of first doing the research. So, so I, I, the genesis was that Blake was looking for a watch and he knew I was into watches and he said, you know, I have a few hundred bucks, like what should I get? And like at the time I didn't really know, like I was, I had a bunch of Nixons that I was really into oh, yeah. and this Nuka, which was this fun digital watch. Um, he wanted something a little bit more like classical. And so we were looking and, you know, it's not like the internet was new at that point, you know, so it's like, we looked at the internet, we're like, what, you know, what watches are there? And there was just really mediocre results um, for watches at that price point in terms of, you know, reviews or anything. So we just sort of, you know, unintentionally got a survey of the landscape, if you will, of like what watch blogs were like. Um, and obviously the forum. So there were the forums, which you could find some, you know, a depth of conversation but it's, you know, forums are always kind of hard to penetrate and they're not for everyone. And they, you know, there's no real necessarily like presentation concept there. You know, it's right. their forum. You know, the photos are user generated. There's no like packaging to it all. So and like personally, like I'll read forums, but I'm not the kind of person who's ever really been interested in engaging in a forum. Right. Um, so, you know, we were just thinking, well, okay, like personally, I have a design background, I can do some branding, I'm a half decent photographer, which, you know, in retrospect, I wasn't, but like, I felt that way, you know, <laughs> um, like, we could probably make a site that a at the time, like looked better than the other watch sites, which were, you know, Hodinkee was a blog spot at the time, and like a yeah. Tumblr. So there wasn't really much of a site there yet. Um, I mean, he's very quickly, obviously growing. The snowball was <laughs> going down the hill. We right. just didn't quite see it at the time. And then a blog to watch was a blog to read. And it had a very, had a very strange look to it at the time. It was very like Baroque looking. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and that was, 
that was really it. Like, I guess Fratello was around. It just ever, nobody was where they are now. You right. Know? What were you trying to accomplish when you sort of set out to put those first posts on, et cetera? Like, were you just sort of doing reviews? Were you doing commentary? Yeah, I mean, I think the very first post might have been about, like, a Braun watch. It, it was really, it was just, like, about highlighting these watches that the other sites at the time were not talking about. So, you know, very affordable watches, um, you know, design, the kind of, you know, there's, like, the, the watches that you'll find at, like, a museum store. Yeah. That, frankly, still don't necessarily get the greatest um, coverage, and partially that's because it's it's funny, we've tried, and they just take seemed to get almost like no response kind of a thing. Mm. Um, but yeah, just nobody was looking at these, at these brands and, you know, there are brands like, so I think the very first review, I know, I know actually the very first review on, on Warner Brown was of the watch that Blake actually ended up getting, which was a Sovet, okay. which was, you know, you could go into like a men's like wear store and they'd have a handful of watches and Sovet was one of them. And there were these sort of, as you could guess from the name, these sort of like military, severe, brutalist sort of looking watches <laughs> Uh, but they were cool, you know, and like, you know, in a day when Bell and Ross and these other brands were still kind of really popular at the forefront, but cost several thousand dollars, like the Soviet sort of was a nice, affordable contrast to that. But there was like no articles on it. Hmm. Um, and then from there, I found the Seiko Fives and we looked at Loom Tech and then we found like Christopher Ward. And, you know, there was this whole like culture that was out there that just was like bubbling under the surface that, um, you know, at the time was really just being ignored or felt like it was being ignored. And yeah, so, you know, we just, we just, we just tried it and really we had no uh, goal there. Okay. It was just, it was for our own amusement and it caught on in the, you know, in the sense because we were providing something that nobody else was and any kind of traction was so exciting, you know, like 50 people in a week was really exciting traffic. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yep. So it was, it was kind of easy to, uh, get those in initial dopamine rushes that kind of pushed us forward. And, um, and then within that first year, we met our, our third partner, James Helms, who was running a similar site called Real Watch Review. And he was sort of like, you know, we should team up. We're doing kind of a similar thing. We're similar kind of age. And we're like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But then it really, the conversation really gelled once we were talking about the fact that we wanted to get into making straps um, because similarly to the websites, the, the blogs at the time, like the strap stores were all kind of the same thing. They were sort of all catering to a Panerai audience, um, selling brands that were, you know, the same brands like Hirsch and Hadley Roma and these kind of like, you know, standard sort of watch strap brands. And they weren't, they all had the same inventory and it was all very classic looking. And we were, you know, at the time, the kind of the U.S., made Americana kind of uh, menswear stuff was really kind of in full gear. So, you know, recently like it, we picked up like Red Wings and Wolverines and those kinds of boots and getting into Filson and, and brands like that. We're like, like, where is this aesthetic for watches? You know, why is nobody making a strap in America? And why, why, like, why can't you find like a Horween Chrome XL strap? Uh, you know, now like Horween Chrome XL is like all you can find in watch straps. But back then it was very hard. So I literally would just go up to the garment district f during my lunch breaks from my, my <laughs> the last job I had and would just take these cold call interviews with manufacturers and basically try and see if they would be willing to manufacture watch straps with us and until I found vendors, you know, and that's kind of how that all started. Yeah, and so watch straps were kind of the early product that you had. Yeah, yeah. It was watch straps and then pretty quickly the, the watch roll. Yeah, yeah. And then what did the trajectory look like, the sort of base trajectory look like after that? It was really very slowly, you know, I mean, it was really like, that wasn't like a get rich quick scheme that worked <laughs> kind of a thing. <laughs> like, sure, people were buying straps and there was, the company was making money, but it was, it was very, very, very little at the time. Uh -huh. The whole like marketing, like advertising money and marketing like that, that was and always has been like a, you know, a strange kind of a challenge and you know, bringing on brands at the time, especially early on, was pretty difficult because there was still a lot of mistrust on this whole internet thing, you know, from watch brands, which is shocking as that sound. But, you know, they didn't really want to buy banners and things like that. And so it was really, I mean, it was really just a slow roll at first. And there were just, you know, milestones along the way. 
like I said, when I left my job, it, it was way too early. Like we did, the company was not at all making enough money to support me. So I took a very tiny salary. You know, it was it was like a quarter of what the salary that I would have needed kind wow. of a thing. And so I was doing that and just a ton of freelance work, just design work and stuff. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of how it got started. And then incrementally, you know, my other partners came on, but we, we all just took very, very, very little money for years and, um, worked really, really, really hard and would build things piece by piece. You know, I mean, we had a, our managing editor, first managing editor, Ilya Riven joined, I, I don't remember what year, but it was, you know, it took a really long time to kind of get him from like part-time to full-time, that kind of a thing. Um, but then we had some really big successes along the way, like our wind-up fair. We first launched that, like that was, you know, that was one of those things where we just really like rolled the dice and put all the money we possibly could. You know, it was like one of those things. We took our shot. If we had failed miserably somehow, it probably would have. <laughs> we might not be talking right now. Um, but, you know, we didn't. We were confident about it. And you just kind of, you know, that was sort of our strategy was just take the occasional big risk and feel really good about it before we do it. And, you know, trust our instincts that have gotten us this far and and go with it. And Slowly but surely, it's turned into a a company that's doing quite well now. You know, yeah. now we have fifteen people total now. So that's amazing. Yeah. So where was the first wind up? It was in Soho. Um, okay. If somebody asked you like to describe Worn and Wound now, um, how would you describe it as a company, <laughs> as an enterprise? You know, because it has different features yeah. or whatever. I'm just curious how you would how you would present it to someone who didn't know about it very much. Yeah, I, this is probably something I should practice more. But like, we, we actually recently did like this sort of branding exercise and, and came out with this um, like a slogan, which wasn't the goal of it at all. It just sort of fell into place. But we all really liked it. And we actually trademarked it, which is um, experience enthusiasm. And so we see that as sort of like the thing that sort of ties the different pillars of our company together. So it's obviously all based around watches. And uh, you have essentially like the three main pillars of the company, which is the editorial, which is worn and wound where you uh, sort of, you know, consume enthusiasm, our, our enthusiasm for watches. Uh, there is the, the shop wind up watch shop, which um, is where you can collect experience enthusiasm through, you know, the actual obtaining of product. And then the wind up watch fair, our event series, which is where you can like really like uh, in-person experience uh, enthusiasm. And so that's sort of this core thing that kind of, it, it's like, it's like a guiding light. Like if, if, if the enthusiasm isn't there in any one of those things, we know we're not doing something right. And it's kind of comes back to what has sort of kept us going. You know, it's a genuine sort of enthusiasm uh, for watches. So while we've moved away from specifically focusing on just like a, the most affordable watches, so we still cover anything, like the thing that ties together any of the, the the watches we cover, review, et cetera, is like a, a genuine a genuine fascination and enthusiasm about it. Like we don't get in a watch and go, oh God, we have to write about this. You know, it's like we're always really excited about them and we're generally really like nerdy about all these products and everything. And you know, as best we can, that is also the the guy the guiding light behind all the watches and everything we bring into the shop. You know, we try to curate it based on what we think is the most, you know, the best designs, the best value, the most interesting product and things like that. And then obviously, I mean, the event sort of speaks for itself. If you if you get to attend a wind-up watch fair, like it's a sort of a kinetic enthusiasm there. You know, it's just, it's tons of fun, great community and, and just all this, uh, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and just as a bit of a promotion here, you obviously just had the one in San Francisco, but the first one in Chicago is coming up, right? Yeah, it is. So July 15th uh, through 17th um, in Chicago, 221 North Paulina Street. Um, yeah, so the, that is the West Loop. And I, it, no, it actually is called Venue West. Yeah. Yeah. And so. it, my wife was actually just down there for business. And she, I said, well, where are you staying? She's like, well, I'm in the sort of West Loop. I'm like, really? That's where I'm going to this watch fair. And she, you know, she's kind of like, right, your watch fair or whatever, right? Like she's <laughs> not a, there's a division of labor as far as the the interests there. But but right. she said, oh, it's so nice down there. It's like, there's like mm -hmm. restaurants and it's kind of up and coming and stuff. So I'm really excited to see it. It's, it's supposed to be a really cool spot. So yeah, it's a, it's a nice it's definitely a nice area. I do recall when I went to grad school there, that's kind of where like the hipper 
like yeah. restaurants were kind of uh, opening up and things like that. Yeah, that's cool. So you, you were talking about brands a little bit and the range of brands that you cover in, sort of in the in the watch shop, but also kind of editorially and, and traditionally having some dedication to, you know, more affordable mm-hmm. watches or watches that might in, engender enthusiasm, but might not be so, um, I, I don't know, sort of exclusive or whatever, or just ha- mm-hmm. have so much money involved. So there's sort of that piece, but then there's the underappreciated one. And I was thinking I like to go back sometimes in podcasts that I follow and go back. You have a lot of podcasts now. I think you're up to whatever, 250 almost or something <laughs> yeah, like ton, that. A ton right? of podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a, it's a nice library actually. And so I, mm-hmm. I was listening to the one on when you visited Damasco or Damasco. I don't know how you, how you say it, but, um, uh, and it was just fun to learn about a different brand. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's not one that's in the, you know, common parlance of the top 10 brands or whatever, but it was really interesting yeah, yeah. To, to kind of go back. And I, I saw there was a recent post on the site too, on your site um, mm-hmm. about a watch from them. Yeah, so they do cool stuff. I'm, I'm kind of curious, how do you determine which brands to work with, to review, like uh, aside from just sort of a general enthusiasm, but what, mm-hmm. you know, what, what's that process like? I mean, obviously there's sort yeah. of Rolex, Patek or whatever, and, and you've got these big brands that occupy so much of the, the sort of Horalo verse or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> but like don't really offer much of that enthusiasm, at least for someone like me. I mean, obviously I have this thing with the Rolex right now, but um, yeah, yeah. so I'm curious kind of how you approach that and, and finding brands or deciding which brands to, to go or finding new brands. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, you know, I wish there was an easy answer, but it's really a lot of it's kind of gut based um, and trusting our, our instincts on, you know, what, I don't know, deserves is sort of the wrong word, but what sort of like, you know, I guess the way to think of it is like, there's only so many reviews we can write and they're actually pretty labor intensive and, you know, take a lot of time. So it's like, we don't necessarily want to want to put in that much effort for a watch or brand that isn't necessarily, at least by our sort of judgment, like, into it for the right reasons or really has gone through maybe like the, the unnecessarily necessary amount of like rigor in their approach to a product. Um, and that is, you know, kind of hard to determine some of it's based on, you know, how do they approach us? How do they, what, what's their, what are their emails like? What are their presentation skills? Like, you know, a little bit like, which is a little, you know, I understand like it's when you're getting first getting started, you know, it's hard to have like, like the, the most amazing website, like that's, you know, it costs a fortune to make a nice website. But like, if you send me an email, and you don't have a link to anything. It's like, you know, that's a bad start. I'm not gonna like go through the process of searching for your brand, you know, something like that. And if you're, just at a state of like an early render. It's like, well, there isn't really a product there yet. Like you have to go through like prototyping, like you have to get some part of this done sort of to really, you know, get on our radar and, and, and you know, kind of for us to spend time on it. Um, but then a lot of it's, you know, really the design, you know, I think, and it's very subjective and I, I will totally admit to that, but like, you know, if something feels kind of, you know, generic or cookie cutter. It's like, why would we write about this thing again? Kind of a thing, you know, it's like another brand made another watch that looked like, like this, you know, there, there, there is just isn't enough difference. Either they didn't do their research and kind of looked at other brands on the market or like, or they copied somebody, you know, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it can be hard to tell, or, you know, the hardest part is sometimes things just don't look good, you know? And I'm not interested in giving bad reviews. That's never been what we do. Um, I don't think there's any point in yeah, just being really negative. I, I think there's, there's, there's something to be constructive and giving, you know, criticism in a way that'll, that'll help a brand potentially if they, you know, which obviously it's all subjective. Like I said, they don't have to agree with anything we say, but you know, I'd rather, you know, say, oh, well, if this, you know, like this, this dial, the XYZ elements are great, but it was overcrowded or they didn't need all these extra elements or bells and whistles. If they, you know, pulled it back, you know, like it, there'd be more open space, you know, something like that. So you can kind of like imagine and, you know, maybe that'll ring true to them. Maybe it won't, but it's not like saying, Oh, this is ugly. Yeah. <laughs> Move on, right. you know? So yeah, I mean, that's, 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 that's like, that's all part of it. Um, and then peppering in there, you know, like, you know, things like the, like an Omega Speedmaster or something that comes out, like, it's everybody will cover it for sure. And everyone will try and review it. But at the same time, like, you know, there's 
I do, we all personally like those watches as well. Like, you know, there's something to the kind of iconic watches and the big brand watches and what they offer. But, you know, so long as there's people out there who are interested in potentially purchasing that product and they want a well-written, informed review with high-quality photos, like, that is something that I think is of value to them. And when it's something as big and as popular and, frankly, as, like, evergreen as maybe a generic luxury watch, like there's just value to having that on the site as well. So, you know, we try to kind of serve the whole community in that way. I'll definitely say like on my personal level, like I like getting the weird things in from brands. Like I like, I just have these watches right now. I just, I'm I'm still writing the review, but I just filmed a little video for it. Um, It's branded Neotype that uh, they're, they're French and the watch is called the, LM01 type D. I think I got that right. And, uh, you know, they just, they did something different. Like they sent these watches out and they're these solid watches with funky curves on them. And they're built, you know, they're solid like a rock and they don't look like anything else currently on the market, but they're not like weird to be weird. You know, like they did a really good job. Um, it's not for everyone, but it's, there's like, there's a vision there. And I guess that's kind of like when you can see that there's a vision that's, that is really something that's important to me. Like I, I'm almost rather see that than, than know that they're a really successful brand. You yeah. Know? I think that's something that strikes me about what worn and wound offers and that I've appreciated about it is that you can get, you know, if there's a new Seiko five coming out or whatever, like those conversations take place and you know, that there's enthusiasm there, like in your words, but then a brand or an initiative doesn't have to have shown a certain amount of sales or whatever necessarily right where yeah, no. some places it seems like it, you have to, it's like well we do patek we do rolex we do the the highest end stuff and we might dip down in certain ways but are pretty risk averse and and i don't know i appreciate that fact that you know it seems like this is a place to learn about things that are kind of off the beaten path and might say something mm-hmm. different regardless of where they end up fitting in the overall conversation eventually. Yeah, certainly. And that's, you know, that's definitely been the approach. It's somebody told us this early on, but like, you know, it's sort of, but they, they're like telling us what they liked about what we did, you know, in a similar way. And it was sort of like, it's easy to sort of put yourself behind a brand like Rolex and be like, roll vintage Rolex is cool. Therefore I'm cool. And we're, (laughs) this is what we do. It's hard to do that for a brand that nobody knows and might fail. You know, it's like sort of, like you're saying, it's sort of a risk. It's not like, I guess it's a reputation risk or something, but it's very, um, I don't know. And the, and the reality of it has, has been that there's, it's been, we've benefited from it certainly a lot more than, than we've ever like lost from it. You know, not every brand we've talked about has, has launched their watches. Occasionally you have the occasional Kickstarter scam that nobody <laughs> knows is going to happen, you know, that kind of a thing, few and far between. But, um, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather take a chance on a cool brand doing something interesting um, than just, yeah, like you said, sort of just sticking with the known quantity. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, and I think when you say reputation risk, I think it really depends on what kind of reputation you're trying to shine up. Um, yeah. and I feel like that's, that's appreciated mm-hmm. in the sense that you can find new things. And, and mm-hmm. also if it does fail, right, it's being part of the discussion about what that thing was and some things will, you know, fail, some things won't. Um, but that's part of the discussion about the evolution of these watches and, and, and different ideas. So I don't know, seems like that's an important part that should not get lost um, in, yeah. in, the, in the undertaking. So I'm curious, you also have done some, you know, collaboration stuff. So I'm curious kind of how that comes about and how you felt about that, like what your, what the highlights are of collaboration um, work so far. Yeah, I mean, so, so I love that because it's sort of like my greatest current like product design outlet I get to have. Um, and it, it started actually the very, very first one we did was with Aviate. This is a long time ago now. I forget which year. Um, and they approached us to do it. And at the time, like no editorial outlet had made a collaboration watch yet. And we actually, <laughs> we released ours before Hodinki relaunched their MBNF, but you know, in the scheme of things that are going to make news and AVA doesn't quite <laughs> match up to an MBF that I think, whatever, they made like $2 million in five minutes or something. Right. Well, you know, whatever. Sort of, but you know, yeah, no, whatever. But yeah, exactly. But, um, 
you know, it's well, it's always been interesting with hunting because they tend to, with most things, like get there a little bit before us, but we are clearly all working on everything at the same time. So like we see these same opportunities out there. It's just, you know, now that they're so much larger, they can kind of move faster still. But um, so it's, it, but it's always just been like a fun out creative outlet. And, you know, it started so with a, you know, a brand like Aviate, they just sort of let me like do what I wanted to do. And it was cool. And it was, it, we had a you know good response to it. We did two versions of it. And from there, we, you know, it, we're able to approach a brand like Stova, which was, you know, this, a brand that like did and still do hold in extremely high regards and being able to work with some, you know, brand that I'd say has a, a larger kind of global recognition was really, it felt really, that was really like a, a, a moment, like, you know, a proud of kind of a thing, you know, it was like, okay, this is, this is a thing now we get to kind of put our mark on a sort of like a, a history of a brand sort of like you know, it's just in their catalog, but at some point they made a, brand, a watch with us and that feels yeah. really cool. Um, and it's a really good kind of moment for the brand as well. And this is sort of why it works so well. So it's like the amount of attention that brand will get from us because we've made this product and invested in this product with them is like abnormal compared to just a normal launch, right? It's going to be it's going to you know, be a bigger launch. It's going to have some sustained social media and maybe even sustained, you know, coverage on the site, depending on how it kind of, you know, sells, et cetera. So there's just a, you know, really good like marketing and awareness opportunity there. Plus they sell however many watches. Um, so, you know, from there, it's just kind of grown and more brands. We've approached brands, brands have come to us. And now, honestly, mostly brands come to us for them. I'll still reach out to brands that like I personally am just like, I want to, I want to do something with those guys kind of a thing. Um, but you know, we have, we have a cycle of them going now and then like, I'm already, I just yesterday was talking to a brand about, you know, stuff we're doing next year. It's a part of the business. It sort of fits in with the, obviously the commerce side. It sort of actually, I mean, it kind of brings together a couple sides of the business um, in these individual moments. Um, and now that we also have a bigger team and are able to create like better assets and things like that. Like we really get to treat these as like big launches. Like we just did a photo shoot last week with a model down in Dumbo under like the bridges to get this kind of like iconic New York look for something that we have coming up really soon, actually. <laughs> oh, wow. Frighteningly soon. That's okay. actually not a collaboration though, I should say. That's more of an exclusive launch. That it, it, it in fact isn't a collaboration, but it's a, a brand like gave us an exclusive launch through the shop, but we're so sort of treating it. What like does that mean exactly? Like, so you get the first launch or you get, all, did you buy all of them? No, we get basically um, a, an exclusive window okay. for a, like a few weeks to be like basically the first place that wow. sells it. All right. Um, which is cool. And it lines up with Chicago, which was sort of like oh. part of it. So Will we get to like promote it with. Will we have them there? I, I, yes. Yes. I believe this watch will be for sale in chicago so okay yeah that's exciting yeah it's no, it's a cool watch i think people people will be excited to see i which i can't i can't give any details sure. so very very <laughs> of course very cryptic yeah. But. yeah um so i have a sort of related question it seems like some of those collaborations really are important for both the brand but also for you at warren wound to have to mm -hmm. generate excitement but also to kind of put your mark on the watch design world, right? And, mm -hmm. and be a part of that. I'm curious how you think about brand ambassadors. And obviously <laughs> there's sort of, this may sound like a, an offbeat question, but there, there are a lot of things that are different about brand ambassadors to that. But in, on the other hand, they're either individuals or businesses or whatever that pair with a brand or a type of watch or a particular watch to help raise its profile, et cetera. And I'm just wonder how you make sense of them. Like, do you feel like <laughs> they're a good thing? Do you have, like, you've ever thought of having a brand ambassador yourself? Oh, like, I, I don't know. I'm just curious, like what, not, and that's sort of a joke, but um, yeah. <laughs> I, I just wonder kind of how you think of that uh, in the watch world. Cause I, I see it sort of in a variety of different ways. So just wonder your thoughts. Yeah. And that's something I've always had a, a contentious sort of relationship with. Um, I'm not really like, I'm not into celebrities and celebrity culture at all. And I, I'm actually, I find it kind of revolting a lot of the time. And so like something being cool just because it got slapped on some celebrities wrist who got paid a lot of money to wear it, like just doesn't make sense to me. Um, so there's, there's sort of that avenue of, you know, Oh, a rock star, an actor got paid. Like I just genuinely don't care. I understand its value for reaching a broader 
customer base. And I mean, that's what they're trying to do. It's not really for us enthusiasts who are pouring over all the details of these watches every day. It's for, you know, a person who's going to maybe walk down the street and be like, oh, that's, you know, right. <laughs> I was about to call out something, you know, oh, that's X actor or actress. Like, I know who they are. What are they doing there? Um, so, you know, I, I get the concept, certainly. Um, just not for me on that in that level. I do think there are there is an interesting you know path to ambassadorship as well that you don't see it very often. But um, a brand like like Fairer, they they have two ambassadors. I think they're still considered ambassadors. Um, um, but there one's like a car photographer in England, and you know she's just this fantastic photographer, and like she's not like a, a well known name kind of a thing. I mean, I think right. in the world of car photography, she's well known, but like. Amy Shore. Amy Shore. Okay. Um, Amy Shore Photography. It's cool. It's like a person who does cool work and has a relationship to the brand through being like British and um, just, you know, they're just supporting an artist basically in this way. Um, you know, and I think that's, that's cool. They're kind of raising their profile simultaneously. And, you know, so like, and I know she like wears the watches. Like, it's not like, oh, she puts it on for a photo opportunity and takes it off, you know? Um so yeah, I think that's really cool. And I think that's something brands could do more of if they think it's a value for them, you know, and I, I think a challenge in, in running a brand that they don't all, not everyone runs into, but you know, it's like, how do you continue to tell your story between launches, especially if you sell out, you know, it's, it's hard to sort of stay top of mind and everything. And so, you know, I think having somebody to work with, to tell your story throughout the year on social media, et cetera can certainly, you know, can certainly have a lot of value there. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I find a lot for me, what impresses me about brands or I guess impress gives the wrong connotation that that affects me or or really makes an impression is certainly the the collaborations tend to, right? Because there's something different. Mm -hmm. I learned something about the two different places and there's something new that's generated. So I find value in that and as a sort of consumer or someone who's understanding what's going on, but also think, to your point about this photographer, right? She's not mm -hmm. a household name. She's not Tom Brady, right? But mm -hmm. I find that really attractive. It's like, oh, somebody, you can see somebody actually finding value and in the watch and finding mm -hmm. ways to use it. And that's something that I'd like to do with a watch. So I, 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 I feel like that's a, a really important point that brand ambassadorship partly is about this sort of celebrity right? Which is a marketing yeah. question. But then there's, yeah. I think, you know, it's almost a glorified review. And when you mm -hmm. read a review and somebody's actually done something with a product or whatever, and you're like, oh, I want to, I could identify with that person doing it. So I think that's a really good point, yeah. actually. No, now that I'm thinking about it, that sort of ties into some of the content we create, which, you know, is not, hasn't, the, the word ambassador is never used, but, you know, we have our out of um, office series, which yeah. uh, Thomas Kalara, our, our, you know, editor uh, creates. And, you know, it's, he goes on these adventures. And so it's like, well, I should bring a new fun watch on the adventure and kind of see how it fits in, etc. And it's, these aren't like skydiving or things that are insane. They're, you know, he, he's out in San Diego. These are things within a couple hours of where he lives that, you know, anybody in that area could be doing. So it's very approachable, you know, and I think that's the reality. Like, you know, I'm wearing this Black Bay Pro in, in an office setting. There's no, nothing pro going on here, you know, but <laughs> maybe, um, you know, maybe I will wear it on a hike or something or seeing somebody like, you know, test it a little bit. It's like, oh yeah, that is what this watch I'm wearing can do. So if I want to go do that, I can do it wearing this watch, et cetera. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a, there's an opening for that too, that people like to see them being used and understand them that they can be used, not just as investment pieces or whatever, which, you know, it's, there's an element of that, that I guess is fine, but it doesn't, doesn't speak to me as much. So, um, I wanted to turn briefly just to hear a little bit more about, or ask a question, I guess, about the the wind up watch shop. And I don't know mm -hmm. if you how much you disclose as you're not a publicly traded company. <laughs> but <laughs> but what, what do you sell the most of? Can you answer those questions? <laughs> like, do, do you sell watches most? Are straps still a big part of your business? And are they do you, maybe you like, and again, if I'm fine, if you don't want to answer this, but are they more the like, kind of mainstream brands or do you get more sales from the more offbeat or micro brand, et cetera? Mm -hmm. how, how does that shake out? Or Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I don't think it's something to get 
into super detail. I'm also honestly within the company, like I, I don't look at that stuff every day. Um, but you know, we still, we sell a ton of straps we do, but you know, the revenue generator is more watches and we do better, you know, or in terms of volume, I mean, it's, it makes sense, but like, you know, watches that are like under a thousand dollars do very well for us, you know, so you can kind of, you know, and it kind of fits in when you look at the store of what you'd expect, you know, some of the brands are more recognizably na- named, so they kind of will sell, you know, more easily. Others will take a little bit more research, but yeah, it's really, I think it more scales. Yeah. Just in terms of, of the price point. Right. Right. Yeah. And I just have a couple more questions and this one sure. again, maybe one that is, is, you know, something you want to answer or not, but you know, you, you've talked a little bit about Hodinkee. Obviously it's sort of the elephant in the room and in the watch world, right. has become this giant thing in a mm-hmm. way, but I'm curious kind of what, how you would describe where worn and wound fits and the value it brings to consumers and the watch community, even in the, in the face of having, you know, Hodinkee out there. You know, I think what would worn and wound brings and always has brought is a, like a very authentic voice to, you know, to what we do. And, you know, by saying that, I feel like it implies that other people aren't authentic and that's not what I mean, but you know, it's like, we just, we have a style to what we do. We have an an approach. Uh, We often hear like, you know, there's no, we don't present things in a way that intentionally or not obviously has any kind of like gatekeeping to it or anything like that. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's that experience enthusiasm thing. Again, it's like, if we talk about a, a $10,000 watch or a $100,000 watch. I mean, uh, Blake Benner, my colleague, just was taking photos of Global Forces the other day. I don't even know what those things cost, you know? It's like, whatever we write about it, it's not going to be like, oh, this is a wonderful watch to invest in, or here's the reasons why. It's just like, you know, and and then you look at those watches, it's just a fascination with the what they made and how they made it and the level of fit and finish. And the fact that it's a thing you can buy is like almost irrelevant. Like you can buy a, a, you know, a a Picasso too, but like you don't usually talk about it in terms of that you can buy it, right? Like, um, and then when the price is a little bit more approachable, you know, it is, it, it's, it's kind of mixing that into it. It's like, these are all these great features. This is what makes it stands out. This is what, you know, is cool about it. And, you know, here's the proposition for you for the value. But I just, we don't want any, either of those things to feel like it's elitist or anything like that. And, yeah. you know, for better or worse, you know, I, I don't think everyone else gets that tone across. Um, and it's just, it's just sort of a matter of style and taste and in, in, in who we are, you know, we, I think a part, a big part of that comes from the fact that, you know, myself and my partners, like we didn't come into this with, or nor currently have like a ton of money. You know, we didn't, we weren't, this isn't our third business we've launched. We weren't working in finance or we weren't lawyers. Like I was a designer and I stopped, you know, and I quit in my mid twenties. And then like, you know, my business partner, Blake was in non-for-profit space and James is a product a development manager at like, you know, like an industrial company. It's like the pretty, you know, normal kind of, you know, jobs in a sense. And certainly none of them are raking in, you know, tons and tons of money or huge bonuses. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. We just kind of see it from that perspective still. Like I still, you know, I remember the first time I spent $500 on a watch and what that felt like. And now I remember buying that Zenith and what that yep. felt like. Totally. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a similar uh, cliff I jumped off of, but it's different. Yeah. And I think that's part of you're pointing to some of the what, you know, is the over overused word sometimes that that authenticity, right, of that experience that, you know, and I think, too, when people start to look at something as the definitional place, right, the the mm-hmm. Rolex of watches or whatever, that then whatever that group does takes on some other feature that it may not actually have. Um, you mentioned gatekeeping, et cetera, that there are all those features that come with organizations that come into prominence, et cetera. And it's, I think it's really helpful to have other organizations as well that mm-hmm. have some authenticity and, and accessibility, et cetera. And, you know, you have the wind up fairs, which, you know, again, anybody can go to, anybody yep. can experience the watches and go and be a part of it. Um, I think there's a lot of value in that. So anyway, I just, it does seem like there are some really important pieces that shouldn't get lost in the shuffle of, you know, thinking about just, oh, well, there are different online profiles or whatever, but I think there's yep. some real nuance there um, mm-hmm. that can be offered um, both in the editorial side and the experiential side, et cetera. So it seems like there's still a great deal of space to fill. 
Yeah, certainly. You know, the the formula is, is still working and I mean, frankly, it's working better now than it ever has. You know, yeah. we really feel like we've hit a stride in those last like two years or so with everything. And, um, yeah, it seems we're like not, it. you know, we're not looking to change it or like do anything, you know? Yeah. We're not looking to certainly you know pivot or anything like that or change ourselves in any kind of dramatic way to fulfill any kind of different role. Like, yeah, we're not going to, not that there is any like this opening of gap or something and like, like talking about like the luxury brands only or something, but like, that's just, it just wouldn't work. I can't authentically, like, I couldn't give you the same enthusiasm that I, that I can for, you know, the tutor on my wrist or the neotype in my office as I, as you know, as a Vacheron Constantine, as fantastic as I watch is, it's just not what I am personally out there for. So. Right. And I think that question of enthusiasm, there's different ways to experience enthusiasm and, there's a theoretical enthusiasm that most of those expensive watches would have to generate, right? Like yeah. it, there's no actual um, interaction you're really ever going to have with them. It's they're an idea. There's something you might see, I don't know, in a museum or something, but they're not things that you could wear or would want to wear for the yeah. most part, unless you had a, like an obscene amount of money. Um, yeah. No, that's always something I think about too. Like it's one thing to buy some of these watches. It's another thing to wear it, you know, yeah. and that's, if you can't wear it, I don't know what, what fun there is in these in yeah. the watch. So. Well, I'm on a kick on that, not to go off on a tangent, but like certainly wearing this Daytona, et cetera, made me wonder. And, you know, J- James wore that Paul Newman, Paul Newman, right? He did construction with it and stuff like that. Yeah. He just wore it. Um, and because Paul Newman gave it to him and he, it wasn't the Paul Newman then, right? But then... Mm-hmm you know, having this, it, it made me wonder, like, if it were mine, would I have the guts to actually wear it all the time? Yeah. And I, I think to me, that's like a, a really important test case um, from personally for my watches and where I exist. Like, yeah, it could be expensive. It could be nice, but it's got to be able to be worn. And I'm seeing that for actually for all things, not just watches, but like yeah. you buy quality things and then you wear them and use them and enjoy yeah. the, what they bring. And, you know, at the, at the very least they get scratched or dinged, but you know, there's always, I mean, there's a risk with anything, but obviously with watches and their value, you know, obviously like, and being in a city, like, you know, there's always, there's always this concept of like, well, what if, what if I got mugged? I've, per, I've personally been mugged, not for my watch, but it, like it happens, you know, sure. <laughs> and I'm what's sad is it, is it happens. And I was, I was having dinner with a friend recently who has Rolexes and he, you know, he put it, it's like, if I couldn't afford to have it get stolen as like, like it's like you can afford to buy it, but then you also have to be able to afford to lose it, yep. which is a whole nother level. But, and it's, you know, it's just, it's just the reality, like that he's accepted. It could happen. And if it did, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Right. And, you know, that's sort of the emotional safety net there. But Yeah. Yeah. And I think kind of points back to what, at least to me, what needs to be there to enjoy the experience of wearing a watch and having a watch and being able to, you know, experience it fully is not worrying about it or, you know, yeah. having it be something that it's not. So yeah. like an investment or, or something else. So, well, I want to be respectful of your time, uh, Zach. And I just, I guess I wanted to ask just as a sort of wrap up, what, aside from the watch fair that's coming up, et cetera, are there things that you can point to either specifically that are, you're looking forward to for Worn and Wound or just sort of in general where you think you're going or, or things that are on the horizon that we can get excited about? Uh, sure. So, I mean, obviously there's Chicago Fair, there's New York Fair that's coming up. Uh, there's a lot of other limited edition launches that'll start to hit around like September. Oh, wow. Um, so some which will be probably fast sellers, others that'll have be larger volume and be, you know, just fun and, and you know, much more like affordable and, and approachable, which, you know, we like to balance that as well. Um, but then, you know, personally right now, like since, honestly, since we just moved into this office and are able to shoot more video and everything, we're really trying to get back into doing video. You know, I'd say one of my, my personal regrets, though, I also totally remember why we made all these decisions, um, was sort of like taking a step back from YouTube for a little time. Um, and that was really just a matter of not having the capability uh, to produce that much content. You know, we're just too small and video is too time consuming. Um, but now we have a, you know, space to shoot. We have a videographer. And so I've started this new series called A Week in Watches, where on YouTube, where I'm just literally kind of going over a, a few stories 
in a sort of off the cuff manner, things that we might not have covered on the site or things that we did. And it's just, it's so far, it's been a lot of fun to do. And it's kind of a nice outlet for me personally, because I can't actually write that much content anymore these days. I just don't have the time. Um, and so we're going to keep pushing with that. And, um, you know, I, I, I hope people enjoy that, but we're going to try and build other series as well and really just kind of get back into that, into that video game, into the video game, into that video, <laughs> into the YouTube game <laughs> so that, you know, we could put our personalities out there in a slightly different way and, um, and have some fun there. So definitely keep an eye on, uh, on the YouTube channel and on, on, yeah. you know, warnerwound.com in the next few months as we kind of figure that stuff out. Yeah. Last thing you, you've just described having two new watches. Um, and, and some things that are coming out, but anything that you have your eye on that you're excited about either that's coming up, like as far as specific watches that, or one that you like, Oh, this is one that I'm, I've seen that I definitely want to get, or, I mean, maybe that's too, too close to these other two recent Well, yeah, I did just, I I have to, I have to let these ones breathe a little bit as well as my bank account recover because I was kind of... (laughs) That was way, I mean, that was, that's like a year's worth of watch buying or more, frankly. Uh, it was a little ridiculous, but it happened anyway. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I might try and not buy any watches this, yeah. this year. Yeah. And then unfortunately, like I've, ha- I do know some things that are coming up that I am particularly excited for, but I definitely can't talk about any of them. <laughs> so like they are embargoed or just been told to me in, in confidence. Um, but like there is a lot of really cool stuff coming out <laughs> this yeah. year. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited for some of it. And uh, yeah, like there's there's one thing in particular, and that, that's that's all I can say. That I haven't seen anything, but I know of what it is. Okay. And I might be very hard to pass by because it's one of those things that'll be like it won't happen again, kind of a thing. Oh wow. Okay. Sense. So now you've got my attention. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we will keep a we will keep a cl- close. Eye. Do you have a sense of like general? Is that like soon, mid year, longer range? Uh, that will. I mean, I think that'll be fall. That'll be fall. Okay. That'll be fall. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll keep our eyes on you for now, but also in the fall and just in general, keep things and and see the exciting things that are coming out. And it's fun to just watch. So, really appreciate what you guys do, and for I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us here on the Dog Watch and joining us. I'm really grateful um, for your time and and for the perspective that you offer from the range of watches and watch enthusiasm that you guys encapsulate. It's really, really nice to see. Thank you. Thanks again to Zach for joining us today and sharing the history of Worn and Wound. And we very much look forward to seeing as many of you as possible at the Wind Up Watch Fair in Chicago this coming weekend. Our music credit today is Whiskey on the Mississippi by Kevin McLeod, courtesy of Creative Commons. Until our next shift, this is Michael Canfield thanking you for joining us on the Dog Watch. Okay.